Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, I want to tell you a story about when I was 16 years old. Um, I was 16 years old, and I started working at a place called Challenger 3. And uh, it was one of those places where you had the go-karts and, and all that. And if you remember last week, I told you about my failure as, at my first job when I was 15 cleaning carpets. Well, I, I got better, okay? I started actually going to work and working a full day. And Challenger 3 was one of those places where if you worked there, you pretty much worked all day. And you worked till like 11 o'clock at night. And uh, it, was, it was great fun. Well, this particular weekend I was working, and my parents a couple days before come and they say, hey, we're, uh, we're going to Wilmington, we're going to go on vacation, and uh, you're, you're not going, you're staying here. And, uh, and, and we're taking Liz with us, my sister, and so, you know, that kind of makes you feel bad. You know, you're a 16-year-old, you want to go on vacation, but you can't, so just the way life is, sometimes you got to work. And, uh, and so... I'm, uh, I'm coming home from work. It's like 11 o'clock at night, and I get home. There's no cars in the driveway. Everybody's gone to Wilmington, and uh, I get, I get in, in bed, and I live actually down here at the church offices. I lived in the basement of the, the church offices. My parents lived at the top part there. It was the parsonage back then, and, uh, and so I'm sleeping uh, or laying down in bed. It's pitch black down there. It's pitch black everywhere. Get in, pull the sheets up, and lay in there just about to fall asleep. And I hear creaking upstairs, like the floor is creaking. And I hear footsteps. I hear this, this kind of thud from, up, from downstairs, and my heart starts to race. Because I come home, and it's pitch black, and I get in bed. I know my parents. They're all gone. They're, they're not there. The house is locked up. And I do what any self-respecting 16-year-old nerd would do at that time. I didn't have a gun, thankfully. But what I did have was kind of sad. I, I was a nerd, and so I had this big, huge sword. <laughs> and so I take this sword, and I'm determined that I'm going to check every square inch of this house. So I grab this sword, and I start going room to room. To, through this house, and, and, and it kind of has a loop, uh, like a hallway that loops there, and so I'm in the living room, and I'm creeping around the living room, and I'm going into the breakfast room, and I'm, I'm in the kitchen or, the, or the, the, bre the dining area where we eat, and I'm in there, and this long hallway is kind of like our, our kitchen. It's like a long hall, the kitchen is, and at the edge of the kitchen is this wall, you know, and, and all I see from this wall is, is this kind of thing right here where some eye just kind of pops out at me across the wall. And that fight or flight instinct kicks in. And I start like getting ready. I'm like, all right, this is it. He's dying or I'm dying. Someone's dying tonight. <laughs> and all of a sudden, all of a sudden he just pulls back from the wall. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. It was dad. And, uh, and he had come home early, but for some reason his car wasn't out there. But you can imagine the fear that would grip you. I was talking to someone out of all places after the 9.30, so I was talking to someone in the bathroom, real man's man, and he was talking about a similar situation happening to him uh, back when he was younger. We all have had these little encounters where fear grips our heart. 
Today, I want to talk to you about fear. We just sang a song that, uh, that honestly, this song, Oceans, it's, it's gotten a lot of notoriety. It's like the number one Christian song on Billboard magazine right now. Even in iTunes, it's been on the top 10 list of iTunes for, for several weeks and stuff. And, and, I mean, that list is not just Christian music. That's like all music, top 10. It's been on iTunes top 10 before. And, and we think about that. Like, what is it about this song that's drawing people in, not just lost people. What is it, or not just saved people, lost people as well. What is it that's drawing them in to this song? I mean, when you hear lyrics, when you hear lyrics like um, this idea where feet may fail and fear surround me, that when we hear that, it strikes a common chord in my heart. It strikes a common chord in your heart because we have all been in a place in our lives where feet may fail and fear surrounds us. So this morning I want to talk about that. I want to talk about fear. I want to talk about the fact that fear is directly related to our brokenness. Look at the introduction on your outline there. Fear is the attitude displayed. It's the attitude displayed of our brokenness. It's the attitude displayed of our brokenness. And there's this, there's this opposite of fear, whereas fear is the attitude displayed of our brokenness. Faith is the gratitude displayed of God's trustworthiness. It's the gratitude displayed. And there exists in the heart of every person this struggle between these two opposing forces. And the truth is, these two opposites do not sit well in our hearts and in our minds. It's much like Paul talks about in Galatians 5, this war between the flesh and the Spirit of God. That when we become believers, the Spirit of God comes to live inside. And there's this war because we have the Spirit of God living inside, but we also have this flesh. And this is the same dynamic that you see between fear and faith. Fear is not something that comes from God. 2 Timothy 1.7 says this. It's going to come up on the screen. For God has not given us a spirit of fear. What kind of spirit has he given us? He's given us a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, when you read this, it, it, you, there are places in Scripture where it talks about godly fear, the fear of God. Proverbs 1.7 talks about this. The, the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. This is not the kind of fear that Paul's referring to here. Paul is referring to a selfish fear, a self-driven fear, cowardly fear caused by a weak and selfish character. And this is the kind of fear that we see and we find ourselves dealing with on a daily basis. Just like darkness is the absence of light, fear is the absence of faith. And the truth is many of us have created this world and we've got this mindset in our hearts that, that we can be believers that are, that are living the way we should be living and, and we have these worlds where we're men of faith and we're women of faith and we say that about ourselves and we think that about ourselves and yet we have this fear in our lives. And they don't coexist. You're either fearful or you're faithful. And this is what we see. And we have these nice little code phrases, code fear phrases that, that are Christianized. Like, I'm really concerned about this, or I'm anxious about this, or I'm worried about this. These fears that drive our lives. 
And the fact is, this, this fear that's there, it is like a cancer to our soul. It's a cancer to the fellowship we have with a holy God. This kind of fear has no place in our lives. And the Bible is not silent on this. The Bible talks a lot about fear. It, it, the command, fear not, occurs 189 times in Scripture. If you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, we see this play, this struggle between fear and faith. And it's a story that many of us have grown up hearing. I've kind of grown up in this church. I've been here since I was about seven or eight years old. And, and, and you know, back then, when you go to, to, to uh, your connection group, we didn't call it connection group back then, we called it Sunday school. And I remember being in Sunday school, and, and some of you may have, may have been the ones teaching me. I don't, I don't know, but, but, but I remember being there, and, you know, you didn't have the fancy PowerPoint and Pro Presenter and all those great, you know, screen displays. You had a felt board. Anybody remember a felt board? Okay, a few people, all right. I'm showing my age here because some of the kids are like, what's a felt board? Anyway, you got this felt board. And what you would do is you would put felt people, felt cutouts on the board, and that would be your PowerPoint. And so for that Sunday, you know, you'd take the green felt off the bottom that represented grass, and you'd put the blue felt on, and then you put this little boat here, and you'd have all these giant disciples that are the same size of the boat trying to fit into the boat. And then you'd have this, this generic felt Jesus that was always dressed in white, and you put him on the water. And then as you're telling the story, Peter is taken out of the boat and put on the water. And then halfway through that story, he's halfway in the water, like halfway down, and then he comes back up and Jesus is holding him. This is a story that we're familiar with. But I got a feeling, if you're like me, that a lot of times we read stories or we grow up hearing the same stories about Scripture and we remember the facts, we remember the information, yet forget the point of the message, the point of the story. So I want us to look at that. This morning, If you look at Matthew chapter 14, the whole chapter, we're not going to go through the whole chapter this morning, but let me just say this. The whole chapter of Matthew 14 is basically a snapshot of the day in life of a disciple or the day in life of Jesus, a life in uh, the world of a disciple. Because that's really what Matthew 14 is. It's a day. It's a whole day, and it's showing you how that day is playing out. And Matthew 14, that day for these disciples starts out pretty tragic. Verses 3 through 12 talk about how John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, is murdered. He is beheaded for what he preaches, for what he stands for. And I, I just want you to picture this with us here. I want you to picture, you've got 12 disciples that are sent to go and retrieve the body of John the Baptist, bury him, and then they come back and they tell Jesus about it. Now think this through with me for a second. I want you to read between the lines. Imagine you being one of those disciples that goes and retrieves the bodies, buries the body, and then tells Jesus about it. You have to be wondering, if you're a disciple, you have to be wondering, okay, this is Jesus' cousin, a family member, a person that Jesus said was a great person. And he is preaching or was preaching, the exact same message that Jesus, and for that matter, that I'm preaching as a disciple. I really believe that in this moment of these disciples, there was a little uncertainty. 
there was a question that they were probably asking. I mean, Jesus could have saved them. They, they figured out that, God, that Jesus is God. They figured out that he has authority over these things. They've seen him do all these miracles, and yet Jesus doesn't even save his own cousin? Why doesn't Jesus save him here? And they have to be asking the question. I would be asking the question. I wonder if I'm next. I wonder if I'm gonna, my death, my life is gonna end like John the Baptist, because we're preaching the same thing he did. And so it starts out with this tragic moment in Matthew 14. And then it just completely shifts to this incredible event. Jesus goes, he retreats to the wilderness, and people follow him like crazy. They're all there, they're following him, and rather than turning them away, he has compassion, and he, he begins to teach them, and he feeds them which is a pretty amazing miracle. Feeds 5,000, and that's just men. 5,000 men plus women and children. This incredible miracle that we know about, this incredible moment where all of a sudden we go from tragedy to triumph. And in this moment, Mark, the book of Mark tells us, he has an account of the same story. The book of Mark tells us that they were ready at that point, after this miracle, they were ready to make Jesus king. They said, you know what? This guy can create, I mean, he has miracles. He creates food out of nowhere. He does this. He heals the blind. He heals the sick. He calms the storm. He does all this stuff. I think we can take out the government. And these people are gathered, they're trying to make Jesus their king, and they're thinking, and the disciples are thinking, we'll take out the Herods, we'll take out the Roman Empire, and we will rule the world. Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of God. We're going to have the kingdom of God right here and right now. And there's this dramatic, dramatic shift in their tragedy to triumph, thinking, all right, this isn't so bad. We're not going to die today. We're not going to die this week. They're about to make Jesus king. We're about to revolt. we got a guy who can do miracles. And then, in the midst of all this, Jesus does something very unexpected. Something that really just kind of blows your mind when you think about it. And I want us to look at what he does here in verse 22. After he's fed the 5,000, after they've tried to insist on making him king, verse 22 says, immediately, immediately he, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Now, there's an incredible moment here that I wish we could spend a lot of time on, but we just don't have time. Jesus, Son of God, spends a lot of time in Scripture going and praying. There is a whole message there that we don't have time for today, but I have to at least make note of that, that Jesus is a man of prayer. He's going to pray. But look at what he does before he goes to pray. It says he made the disciples... Get into the boat. What does that imply? It implies that they are reluctant. They are reluctant to leave the crowds. They are reluctant to leave these people that are trying to make Jesus king. I mean, they're sitting there thinking, they're thinking, okay, this momentum's gonna continue. We've got the numbers, we've got the momentum, let's go for this. And Jesus just completely just kills the momentum, just absolutely kills it. He sends the disciples away. He sends them on a boat. He's about to teach them something on the boat. He sends them on the boat, and he dismisses the crowd. And then I, I can only imagine these disciples in this moment, it's almost like all of a sudden that fear, that uncertainty 
returns. It's like we had our chance. We had our chance to escape danger, to escape death, like John the Baptist had. But now we're back in the same boat that John's in, that John was in. The boat of the unknown. And so what is it? What is it when we talk about fear versus faith? What is the foundation for fear? Look at your outline there. Number one, fear's groundwork, fear's foundation, fear's basic bottom line. It's the unknown. It's the future. Look at verse 24. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land. He puts them on the boat. The boat goes out on land. He's not in the boat, by the way. And it was off the land a long way. And then it says, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. In Matthew 8, Jesus is in the boat with them, and and he's sleeping, and the waves come up, and he calms the storm with one word. That's a pretty awesome story. But guess what? Jesus is not in the boat with them this time. There's fear there. They're in this storm, and Jesus is nowhere to be found. And in the fourth, verse 25, and in the fourth watch of the night, this is like from 3 to 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Now you see a lot of fear here. You see fear in what happened to John the Baptist. You see fear in the storm. You see fear in this ghost. And here's the bottom line about fear. Fear is based in the unknown. It is based, its groundwork is in the future. This is a kind of a deep statement, but listen. All of this fear, all all fear in general, is in the potential unknown future outcomes of these encounters. Let me explain what I mean and hopefully it'll make sense. I've always, ever since I was a little kid, I've been scared and and frightened of snakes. We just don't have a good relationship. I know some of you probably have them as pets. You're weird, but I'm not going to have a snake as a pet. I'll just tell you, it's not going to happen, all right? Um, You're not weird, by the way. You're just different than me. Um, But... But here's the thing, and it makes sense, okay? My papa growing up, my mom's dad, he, he's an outdoorsman. He, he lives out in the sticks, and I spent a lot of time with him growing up. We went camping, we, we went fishing, and you know what? When you're out in the woods like that, guess what? You're going to have a lot of encounters with snakes. And I remember, I have like these mental images, I dream about this sometimes, of these moments where we had some close calls, where a snake was like right there. There was one time he opened a door to his, his shed, and literally, a snake jumps, almost bites him, he yanks his arm before it it bites him. I mean, I have these kind of memories that kind of, as a child, really frightened me. And then I, you know, I grow up and what do I like to do? I like to go hiking. Guess what? Same issue. About every time I go, I, I run into some kind of snake. Now, here's what I want you to realize, and I want you to kind of get this in your head, because you're, you're the same way. I'm not really fearful of the snake, I'm not really fearful of the snake. I'm fearful of what the snake can do. I'm fearful of the potential future outcome of the encounter with the snake. Because what brings the fear about the snake is not the way it looks or anything like that. What brings the fear, what associates the fear of a snake for me is what if it bites me? What if I die? What if I get paralyzed? What what if? 
And that is really the question that we deal with. Everything that we are afraid of, it's essentially not the thing that is that what we are afraid of. It's the potential outcome, the future of what that circumstance, that storm, that thing can bring into our lives. And fear, fear asks the question, what if? What if? Think about these disciples. They're asking these questions. What if I die like John the Baptist? What if our ship capsizes and I drown? What if this ghost is some kind of demon that kills me? And we laugh about their, their what ifs, but, but imagine our what ifs. I mean, we have what ifs too. What if I lose my job? What if she leaves me? What if it doesn't work out? What if something happens to the kids? What if I fail? What if I get hurt? What if I die? We have all these big what-ifs and little what-if questions that, li- that literally plague our mind every day. And we lose sleep over it. It spurs on depression in our lives. It raises our blood pressure. And it causes paranoia and distrust in our relationships. Fear many times limits the lives that God has called us to live. We are called to live lives of faith, which is the opposite of fear. So when we fear the unknown and fear the future, it limits our ability to see Christ. Everything becomes gloom and doom. And you've been around those kind of people. You might be one of those people that every time you open your mouth or every time he opens his mouth, it's just negativity coming out. And it's almost, I mean, you could be in the happiest place in the world. You'd be at Disneyland and it's like you're around that person. By the way, none of my family is like this. And they're the only people I've been to Disneyland with. So don't think it's them. But, but here's the thing. You, you can be in the best place in the world, having the best day of your life. And there's always that person. And again, you may be this person that's always just saying negative things. I mean, you're just negative about everything. He's just negative about everything. Every positive thing, they have a negative spin to put on it. And what they're doing, what you may be doing, is you are giving, they are giving a commentary of their fears. That's what fear does. It becomes impossible for them to see the supernatural. Last week I picked a little bit on my mom uh, with her phrase that it's, it's just part of life, you know. Um, and I picked on her, so I got to redeem myself this week because she's here this week. So I have to redeem myself in this. But I remember growing up, a phrase that she said a lot, that had a lot of wisdom behind it. And, and there were times in my life where I would be in, in, in dealing with fear. I remember one specific time that, you know, I, I'd been saving up money. I was ready to marry Crystal, and I, I had been saving up money for a long time to buy an engagement ring. And I'd been saving and saving and saving, and then just the worst happens. My car just kills and every bit of that money that I'd saved, guess where it went? It went to the car, and I had to. I, had, I was in school at the time. I, I couldn't just not have a car. I had to get to school. I had to finish my education. And I remember going to my parents' house and just being so distraught, I mean, just so fearful about, well, how am I going to get married? How am I going to have time or have money to buy an engagement ring? And it wasn't like that was an expectation or anything, but it, it was something that I, I felt was important. And I remember my mom said this, and she said it a million times. But she said, and she didn't say it in some kind of weird prophet way like us prophets like to do. She was very gentle, and she just said, Son, have you prayed about this? Let's pray about this right now. And there's wisdom in that. 
Because so many times when, we're, when we see fear in our lives, when we have fear in our lives, the fact of the matter is, and, and even in that moment, I was kind of angry because I, I didn't want to pray about it. I was, I was so focused. When we're fearful, we're focused on just the natural. We can't see the supernatural. We can't see the bigger plan. We can't see God at work. And this is the problem with fear. It takes our eyes off of Christ. I mean, think about these disciples. They are living with Jesus. They're not just seeing him on, him on Sunday teaching a good message. They are living with this guy. They are eating with this guy. They are sleeping in the same area with this guy. And yet, because of their fear, because fear has gripped their hearts so hard, they don't recognize him. They see a ghost rather than a savior. This is what fear does to us. How is it that these disciples cannot recognize Jesus? It's because fear controls them. And there are times where fear controls us. We have to be able to put our eyes on more than just the natural plane of this world. We have to be able to see the supernatural at work. So that's fear's groundwork. What's faith's groundwork? Faith's groundwork is this. It is in the known. And what is it that we know? We don't know the future. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen in an hour from now. Here's what we know if we're believers. We know the person of Jesus Christ. That is what our faith is based on. That is the foundation of our faith. And it is something that we know to be true. Look at verse 27. All this is happening to the disciples. They're in the midst of this storm, tossing and turning, scared of this ghost, scared of this storm, scared of eventually what's going to happen to them in life. And look at verse 27. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus, at this moment, he speaks into their fear, into their darkness, in this deep, dark storm where they feel lost. Jesus knows exactly where they are. Somebody needs to hear this today. We will never be in a place where Jesus cannot find us. We will never be in a place in our lives. We will never be in a storm in our lives where Jesus cannot find us. He is there and he knows exactly what they're going through. They don't think he's there. They don't see him. They don't know. They think he's off doing his own thing while this storm's going on. He knows exactly where they're at. And he knows exactly where you're at. Faith is built on what is known. And this is what, what, what is known. The fact is, we don't know the future. We don't know what tomorrow brings. We don't know. We just don't know. But faith knows Jesus. Faith knows Jesus. And faith completely banks on who he is. Think of these words that Jesus is saying here. These are, these are, every time Jesus opens his mouth, it's something so profound and so encouraging and so amazing. Look at what he's saying here. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, first part he says, take heart. This is the same phrase that Jesus used in John 16, in a broader context where he's saying, you know what? I know, I know life's hard. I know you got tribulations. I know you have struggles, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is the God that we serve. It is not a God that's just 
not familiar with the future, that's just not having any kind of power. This God that we serve, we can take heart in, we can have courage in, we can not have to be afraid because he's overcome the world. Look at the next part of this phrase. He says, take heart. And then he says this, these three words. He says, it is I. This is, this is really, really deep. So hang with me for a second, but this is kind of cool, okay? If you go back and you look at the real translation here, the real Greek translation, what he's saying to the disciples is more than just it is I. He's actually saying this. He's saying, take heart, it is I am. That's actually the literal translation of this passage. Take heart, it is I am. And, and, and Jesus is not using bad grammar here. Okay, it's not that he's using bad grammar. He is telling these disciples, and the minute they hear that, the minute they hear, take heart, it is I am, they immediately know what he's saying. Because this name, I am, this name goes all the way back to Moses. When Moses is at the burning bush, and he's talking to, to, uh, to God, and they're saying, he's saying, what should we call you? What do we tell Pharaoh your name is? And Jesus, and God says to him, you tell Pharaoh, that my name is I am. What does this mean? It's referring to the fact that God is unchanging. He is eternal. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And think about the implication of that. When we have a God that not only knows our past, not only knows our present, but knows the future inside and out, we can trust that. We can trust this everlasting, eternal I am God. And this is what he's saying to them. This is, the, this is the hope, this is the faith that he's instilling into these disciples. And then it says this, because of this, take heart, it is I. And then he, he gives this command, do not be afraid. Because of who I am, because I'm eternal, because I'm the everlasting God, unchanging God, because I know the future, do not be afraid. It's a command. You have no reason to be afraid. Number two, fear's goal is to escape danger and inconvenience. This is what fear does. Fear's goal is to escape danger and inconvenience. Fear drives us to want to stay away from anything that could cause harm or inconvenience, physically or emotionally. Many believe that following Jesus is supposed to be a safe endeavor. There are Christians that believe that. That life is supposed to be about that. In fact, some of the times our highest virtue in our prayers is, is what? God, above all, we pray for safety. I have a question. Have you ever wondered, is that God's highest concern for your life? Is God's highest concern for your life safety, health, and comfort? Does that seem to be the hallmark and theme of believers that have come before you? If you look at Hebrews 11, what do you see? The, the hall of faith. In this context, we could say the hall of the fearless. But what do you see? You see men and women at the end especially. You see men and women who were beaten, enslaved, sawn in two, homeless, afflicted, and mistreated. Does that sound safe? Right now in the Middle East, we have Christians that are dying for what they believe. They're dying for what they believe in. They're not doing anything wrong. They're doing exactly what God wants them to do, and they're in danger because of it. I got a call last night from Abraham. 
And he was just telling me about just the tragedy that's hit them. And I've been in those villages and I've seen those believers and their faith, their, their, their walk with Christ challenges me so personally. And for him to talk about the tragedy and the storm of what they're facing, they are in danger, they are in peril. And they are exactly where God wants them. Life is not about, look at, listen to this, God cares more about submission than safety. God cares more about your obedience than your safety. Yet many of us are driven so much by fear that many will never truly step into the unknown for fear they may fall. I mean, we sing this song that we sang earlier, and, and, and it's such an incredible song, and it's the same, the same phrase that we say over and over and over again. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you have called me. And we sing that. But is our heart actually proclaiming that truth that we're saying to God when we sing that? It's not just a song. It's not just air coming out. It's an actual proclamation to God where we are saying to you, God, we're not concerned about danger. We're not concerned about inconvenience. We just want you to lead us. And Peter answered, look at 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And this isn't some, some moment where Peter gets real uh, pious. It's not a moment where Peter's like, oh, cool, Jesus is walking on water. Let me see if I can do that. It's not that kind of moment. We sometimes kind of get that feeling, but it's not that kind of moment. They're in peril. This ship that they're on is about to sink. And all Peter knows at this moment is it's better to be with Jesus out on the raging sea than to be in this sinking ship. Fear's goal is to escape danger and inconvenience, but faith's goal, faith's goal is to embrace truth. It's to embrace truth. Look at verse 29. Jesus says to Peter, after after he asked this, uh, he says to Peter, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. The truth in this moment is that being with Jesus was more, it was better. It was a better place than to being in the boat without him. Jesus in this moment gives Peter the command to come and and, and Peter doesn't hesitate. Peter's truth in this moment is what Jesus tells him to do. And you can imagine there's 12 disciples in the boat. At least one of them probably thought this. I mean, you're, you're, you're trying to keep the boat afloat and all of a sudden you see Peter and he's, you know, he's, he's getting out of the boat. I mean, if I was a disciple, I'd be like, what are you doing? Stay in the boat. But this is what Peter knows to be true. Peter, all he knows is Jesus said, come, so I'm going. That's all he knows to be true. He doesn't know about the wind. He doesn't know about the waves. He doesn't know about the ship. He doesn't know about the future. All he knows is that Jesus said, come, and he is embracing that truth. He is stepping out in faith. Our good friend, the carpenters, are leaving this week. And they are headed to Zambia. I was on, I had the opportunity, it was just a privilege to be on the first trip they ever took to Africa. The first time they ever went to to that continent. And being with them in Africa and just hearing their heart burn. Uh, Jeremy was there with me as well. And we, we were just listening to the heart burn of two people who Jesus had said to them, come to Zambia. 
And this was several years ago. And to see the culmination of that finally coming into being, the culmination of them finally stepping out. And they've always tried to step out, but just waiting for that opportune time to step out. And you know what the truth is? I've I've talked to them. I've had the opportunity to be on their board and hear their hearts even more. They're not bound by fear of safety. They're not bound by fear of their need. They still have financial need. They're not bound by the fear of that. They're not bound by the fear of the inconvenience of leaving. I mean, we have a Walmart a mile from here. That's inconvenient to think of what they're going into. They're not bound by that fear. They're not bound by that inconvenience. Jesus has said, come, come out to the raging waves of the unknown and they are getting out of the boat. That's faith. That's the faith that God desires for us to have. Number three, fear's growth is based on the perception of the storm. Fear's growth is based on the perception of the storm. Fear is always based on a perception. It's based on what we see. It's what we choose to see with our eyes. Look at verse 30. Peter's out. He's he's out of the boat. He's going to Jesus. What does verse 30 say? But when he saw the wind, when he saw the effects of the wind, when he saw the waves, he was afraid and beginning to sink. Fear always has a way of making the storm look bigger than it actually is. I've had the, the honor for, for several years now. I actually am honored today. My wife's sister is, is here in town with us, one of her sisters, the oldest sister. In fact, uh, Charity, uh, her older sister, was the one that actually introduced me to Crystal. So she has a very special place in my heart uh, among her sisters. And because of Crystal being from California, we have had the opportunity to go there several times, or usually one or two times a year we, we get to go there and, and spend time with their family. And one, one time we were going into San Francisco, we were either going into San Francisco or out of San Francisco. I can't really remember. But I remember why there was a delay. There was a delay because of all this fog. There was fog everywhere. And San Francisco is known for that. And I want you to think for a second, what is fog? I mean, what really is it? It's water. And a square mile of fog, imagine a square mile of fog. A square mile of fog is essentially water that's been divided into 60 billion water droplets. 60 billion water droplets. And a mile, a square mile, seven city blocks. That much fog, you know how much of water it's equal to? A bottle. Fog does something that fear does the same way. Fog and fear, fear does this, it expands, it exaggerates the storm. It exaggerates the perception, which makes it very difficult to navigate through, very difficult to find our way through. Fear's growth is a perception we choose to see. It's a lot also like this ball. Imagine this room is your life. It's your 70, 80, 90, 100 years of life here on earth. And we all have struggles in our life that make up a, a, a portion, a small portion of our lives. And for many of us, the way God wants us to deal with our struggle is not run from it. A lot of times God wants us to face our struggle. He wants us to face our storm. And so we face our storm, but all in all, he wants us to keep our eyes fixated on him through that struggle. And yet, the way we work, the way our fear works is rather than have the struggle here, keeping our eyes fixed on God, we put that struggle right here. Fear puts the struggle right here where it blinds us 
to God. It blinds us to, his, to, to getting our eyes off of Christ. And when we navigate this way, we can see a little bit on both sides. But you know what? We, we're blinded because fear has blinded us. When our, we are called to keep our gaze on Christ. Number three, faith's growth. If you see here, fear's growth is based on perception. Faith's growth is based on the presence of the Savior. Verse 30 again, but when Peter, when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. When it comes to fear, the presence of Jesus changes everything. I mean, do we grasp the idea that Jesus is here with us now? When we pray to God, it's more than just praying to a God that's out in the farthest reaches of the cosmos and the farthest reaches of the universe. He's definitely there. But he's also right here with us. Fear is the reaction of forgetting God. And this is what Peter did. He took his eyes off of God. Every worry that comes in your life, what God is saying to you is, you're forgetting me. You're forgetting me every time you worry. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious. Do not worry. Do not be fearful about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. What's God saying here? He's saying, don't fear. Instead, get me involved in the picture. When I see a person that worries a lot, when I see a person that posts worry after worry on Twitter or Facebook, I see someone that doesn't truly see the presence of their Savior. This is the gift of Christmas. The name that we always say at Christmas, Emmanuel, means God with us. That There was this God that the only way we used to relate to him is through a tabernacle or a tent where a high priest would come in and, and, and make sacrifice, and that's how we would relate to God. But when Jesus shows up on the picture, when God with us, when Emmanuel shows up, it changes. That the glory of God doesn't, doesn't live anymore in tabernacles or temples. It lives within us and is here with us now. Number four, fear, fear's grip holds on to doubt. Verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand after Peter cries out and took hold of him saying, saying to him, oh you of little faith, why did you doubt? Doubt is essentially distrust in God's faithfulness. Peter was gripped by the waves of doubt and, and he's asking the question, what if I drown?" And we got to get this picture. When we think of Jesus, you know, he's not this moment. It's not this moment where he's condemning him. It's not this moment where he's saying, Peter, why did you doubt? When you hear Jesus talk, when you see, when you see it in Scripture, you got to recognize the tone of what Jesus is saying here. He's looking at Peter and he's saying, Peter, why did you doubt? I remember coming home from a mission trip one time. And my son comes in the room. It was a service project, mission serve, actually. And I had a hammer attached to my bag. And my son comes into the room, and, and he sees the hammer, and I'm giving him a hug because I hadn't seen him in a week. And we're talking, and, and, and Will just looks at me, and he goes, Daddy, don't hit me in the head, head with that hammer, okay? I'm like, why would I hit you in the head with a hammer? And, 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 and it's like uh, that moment happens and me and Crystal laugh about it. But, but think about that for a second. I mean, why in the world, this son that I love, the son that I pray for, this son that, I, I, that, that, we've, that we've wanted in our life, why would he think for a second that I would take a hammer and hit him in the head with it? I think when Jesus sees this, I think Jesus looks at us and sometimes thinks, thinks the same thing. It's like, 
How do you not know that I love you? How do you not know that I'll be here for you? How, do, how are you still distrusting my love for you? Fear's grip holds on to doubt. And we blame Peter for, for his faults. But you know what? At least Peter got out of the boat. Some of us have secured our lives from danger and inconvenience so much that there's no point in having faith. There's no need to trust in God's faithfulness and God gets little or no glory in a life that is marked by that. So what is faith's grip? Faith's grip holds on to deliverance. It recognizes that even in our broken situation, situation, we will be delivered. And the fact is, he actually has already delivered us. That we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. The battle has already been won. The sting of death and hell and sin has already been taken out. Verse 32 says, and when they got, out of, got into the boat, the minute they stepped back in the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. To sum up these two verses, two words, test over. God is testing them through this. God uses these storms in our life to direct us to him. He is teaching these disciples that because of who he is, because of he being the eternal I am kind of God, that we have no need to fear. And he is pointing us to recognize this so that we can ultimately be satisfied in him and that he can ultimately be glorified in us. Look at the application. The beauty in our fear is that it becomes extinct. It becomes extinguished when our fear, or when, excuse me, when our faith becomes extended. When our faith becomes extended, when we see God for who he is, when we trust and embrace the truth of what he's telling us and we recognize him, our fear is extinct. The divinity of Jesus brings about the division of fear. And the question is, which will have dominion over your life? Fear or faith? When troubles come, when the unknown is before you, you will be marked by one of these. Which one will you choose? You can't live in a world, you can't live the life God's called you to live, holding on to fear, holding on to anxiety, holding on to worry. You've got to trust in a Savior that has already delivered you and that will continue to deliver you. Will you stand to your feet, please? God, we just pray, Lord, that today, God, we can trust in your hand, God, that you are the God, the, the big I am God, the eternal, unchanging God that is here, that knows the future, Father, that your presence is with us, Lord, and that we don't have to be afraid, God. We don't have to be fearful. We don't have to worry about the future, God, because you are there. And all we need to trust in is the known. We need to trust in you, Jesus, the person of who you are, God. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this opportunity, Lord, just to see a life of, of faith, God. Lord, I pray, Lord, we wouldn't be the disciples that are stuck in the boat, Lord. That we wouldn't be even Peter, that when he gets his eyes off you, God, that we wouldn't magnify our fear. But that we would trust in your sovereign hand and trust you to deliver us in your timing. So God, we pray for, for each person in this room today. We pray for, for those that might not know you in this room. God, I pray, Lord, that they would step out in faith, step out of the boat, Lord, and, may, and start a personal relationship with you, Jesus. God, for those that are gripped by fear, God, I don't know where they're at. Maybe they need to talk to a pastor today, God. I just pray, Lord, that you would just move in this invitation, God, 
and that you would use your word to refine us. God, we thank you for this opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe you're here today and maybe you need to talk to a pastor about a fear that's been plaguing your life, plaguing your heart. There'll be pastors down here at the front to pray with you. Maybe you just need to get along with God and just say,